They might have light duty over there today. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. Morning, morning, morning. It's good. Uh, so we are still in Ephesians, and uh, today is our last day in it. We've been uh, looking at the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote from, from prison. There's a section of letters that Paul wrote whenever he was imprisoned. This time he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing back to one of the main church plants that he was a part of getting off the ground, and that's the church in Ephesus. It's a major city. We've been going over that the last couple of weeks, just looking at the strategic placement of the city and why that was important and why Paul thought it necessary to get a church started there. And uh, we're, uh, we're at the last part of this letter. Now, again, I'll say that letters that Paul wrote were not written in chapter and verse. That's something we added later. So split it up into six parts is just the way somebody else further down the line than us did. And, uh, and so I don't know if Paul ever intended his letter to be read in, uh, in chunks like that. I think uh, he wanted it all read in context. And so we started talking about that uh, the first week, that for us to completely understand where Paul's coming from with this letter and why he would write it and what he's trying to say, we have to take the time to look at the whole thing, not just the juicy tidbits that make nice plaques for our homes. Uh, we, need to, uh, we need to look at all of it, and we need to understand it. We need to grapple with it. And so the book of Ephesians we've been talking about the last few weeks is split up in two parts. First part, the first three chapters is just talking about the doctrine of the gospel. Paul finds it completely necessary to stop and explain to us again the depths and the truths and the realities of the gospel. Because if we don't understand the gospel, then actually living in the gospel won't make any sense and won't be able to successfully do it. So he takes the time to equip through three chapters, half of his letter, on what is the gospel. So we talked about that. And we looked into the finer points of that. And then he goes into the second half of the letter, uh, what we see as three different chapters. And that is talking about putting legs to the gospel. Okay, so now you understand the gospel. You've accepted it. You've received it. And now, now you're going to live in it. You're going to live through it. And here's what that should look like. That's what the second half of the book is. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Don't mistake it for that. Paul's just simply saying, once you have been slain with the gospel, once your flesh has been crucified in Christ, your life should look very different. And here's some of the areas in which it should look different. He's specifically addressing things that were problems in the church in Ephesus. And they obviously carry over for us. There are a myriad of things that he could have confronted. If we're going to sit here and nitpick the ways that we screw up living in light of the gospel, we could have seven years worth of sermons and still not touch on all of them. Am I right? I mean, we're human beings. We have found creative new ways to sin every day. We're very innovative in the sin department. So what Paul's addressing in this is not this exhaustive list of do's and don'ts but things that were specifically deep-rooted sin problems in the church in Ephesus, things that had to be addressed when he talked to them, and reminder that we're reading someone else's mail. It has direct application to us, and God ordained us to have it. But it wasn't written necessarily to us. It was written to the church in Ephesus. So when he addresses things like we talked about last week, wives and husbands, it was a big deal in Ephesus to reorient these people back to what sanctity of marriage looked like. And why? Because they were destroying the sanctity of marriage in their worship at the temple of Artemis. So 
The nutshell that we looked at last week as we wrapped it up in chapter 5 was to say that when we understand the gospel and we've accepted that truth and we live in that reality, it changes how we do life. And it changes the core fabric of all of our relationships. We are married different than people who don't have the gospel. The sense of commitment and the sense of wonder at what marriage is a symbol of, meaning Christ and how much he loves us, his bride, the church. Outside of that, it's just a legal formality of two people making a decision to be together. We've seen marriages go the distance that didn't know Christ, that, that it happens. We've seen marriages of people who do understand the gospel, not go the distance. So it's not a formula that's perfect. We are fleshly beings and we sin. But what he's talking about is at the core DNA of all relationships, all human relationships, when the gospel has infected you, it completely alters the way you view all your other relationships. That's what the, that's what the heart behind this is. But he specifically talks about husbands and wives again because it was such a core problem in the church in Ephesus. So if you turn with me to chapter 6 in Ephesians, it's on page 676 if you're looking at the Bible in front of you. Uh, this is the last chapter in the book of Ephesians. And uh, today, Paul's going to expand on the same thought of relationships and how the gospel affects those relationships. So follow along with me and uh, we're going to read through this. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's one that every parent wants to put on a plaque and hang in their living room, right? Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this, my pages stick together, excuse me, present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, have put, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. So again, Paul gets into the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge that we have been saved from, the knowledge of what we have been saved from, should affect how we live in all of our relationships. He doesn't explicitly say that, but it is implied throughout. You see, but today he gets into relationships that you don't choose You don't get to choose your parents. You don't get to choose your master if you're a slave. They've been given to you. See, because we're fleshly beings, sometimes our parenting isn't perfect. Actually, all the time our parenting isn't perfect. All the time we screw up. There's moments as a parent where you look at it and say... Why wow, I, I, I feel confident about that one. I did that one right. Unfortunately, Satan attacks us more often with the lie that we're not doing it right. He addresses these relationships that, that we didn't choose for ourselves. See, parents can adopt a child. If you can't have children, or even if you do have children and you want to adopt, you can go to an orphanage in, in another country. You can, you can pick a child. But you you hardly ever see, you never see an example where a child who so desperately needs a home has a lineup of parents and says, "Mm, I want those two. Here's, I've read through their portfolio. I feel like they'll raise me right. I feel like they'll take care of me. See, when you do an adoption, you have to do all that. You have to have a home study. It's thousands of dollars to get this to take care of. And and they, they come in, they inspect your home, they ask a ton of questions, do background checks, and then they hand that portfolio to a prospective parent that's considering adoption, and they basically pick you based on your credentials as a human being. The kid never gets a chance to do that. The kid doesn't get that opportunity. But what does Paul say to the child? He says, honor your father and mother. You see, because the gospel changes the way you look at all relationships. Bring honor to them. You didn't choose this relationship. Paul says, I get that. Then he takes it a step further. Adults who, in this culture, owed someone money. Didn't have the money to repay them. So you worked for them. You became their bond servant. You worked for this person until your debt was paid off. That time that I took a baseball behind my dad's shed and threw it through all of his storm windows just to watch the glass break. And my dad made me mow grass all summer to pay him off. I never saw a lick of money 
from mowing the grass that summer because my debt had to be paid. Now, I can't say that I completely obeyed Paul's advice of being cheerful and you know, obeying and being good at that. I, there were lots of times where it was kicking and screaming, go out and get the mower and do it or else kind of thing. But that's the same concept of what a bondservant was. You, you, were, you had to owe a debt. And so you had a master. So he addresses the slave and he says, slaves, obey your masters. Work well. You Basically, you borrowed the money. You got put in this position. You need to work well at that and obey your masters, regardless of how you were treated. But then he addresses the masters and says, don't treat them like yelling at them and screaming at them. No, you treat them differently. Why? What's the motivation? Why should we treat people differently? Because we're always reminding ourselves. This is what Paul keeps saying. This is in the heart of everything he's saying. Why do we treat people different? Why do we love people different? Why are we committed differently? Because we always stop and remind ourselves the wretched mess we were before the work was done on the cross. That Christ reconciled us to himself through the work on the cross in in a state that we could not reconcile ourselves to on our own. There's nothing we could have done. And our master treated us with kindness and grace and mercy when we didn't deserve it. So the knowledge of what we have been saved from affects everything we're in right now. It affects how we treat each other and how we commit ourselves in relationships. It, it affects how we work. You know, the bond servant and, uh, and master analogy could be played over into current modern American employment. You have to provide for yourself and your family, and to do that, you have to work. If you have someone willing to pay you for your work, you have to do what that company or that person is saying you do, and you do it the way they want it done, or you don't get paid. So you do it well, and you interact with that person how? The way Jesus interacts with you. These are not easy things. Quite frankly, there are lots of people sitting here right now. That when you hear Paul talk about marriage like that, and, and you hear Paul talk about children and their parents, and you hear people talk about bond servants, and, and if we take that analogy further in our own lingo, maybe we compare that to employment. And we look at all that, we say, yeah, but you don't know my story, Adam. And neither did Paul. Paul didn't, Paul didn't live my life. Paul wasn't stuck in the marriage I was stuck in. And Paul didn't live with my dad or my mom. And Paul didn't work for that guy or that woman. And neither did you. So you have no authority to tell me how I should live. Well, I kind of do. You see, because Jesus has experienced pain like none of us will ever experience. Jesus has experienced a shunning like none of us will ever experience. Your pain, your pain, as real as it is to you, and as much as you've felt it, and as much as I ache for the pain that each one of us maybe has endured in our lifetime, it's nothing, nothing compared to Jesus' work on the cross. It's nothing to the feeling God had when his children rebelled from him in the garden. 
It's nothing from the feeling God would have gotten when he looked down on all of humanity and found one family worth saving. So it's a dangerous, dangerous, slippery slope to walk as a human being to say that this stuff doesn't apply to me because my pain was too hard. It's a dangerous, slippery slope that leads us to a spot where we don't understand the work of the gospel. We don't understand the work that was done on the cross. And we're unwilling to change because of it. See, that's the whole thing that Paul's addressing in this letter. That's the whole thing. When the gospel is real to you, and you really understand the wretchedness of your sin, and you really understand the ugliness that put Jesus on the cross, when you grapple with that, and you accept it, and you receive it, and you make it yours, and it becomes your lifeblood, it does affect all of your relationships. It does. And if it's not, you're not trusting in a complete gospel. That's Paul's message. That's the message of the cross. It's a kick to the teeth, folks. It's not easy. But it's not supposed to be. The proof that it's not supposed to be easy is what Paul gets into next. Paul gets into the most critical part of the letter. The how-to section. You see, because we're finite beings. I don't want someone to just tell me a bunch of stuff to do. I want someone to, at some level, tell me how to do it. I might be a man who doesn't like reading directions, but at some level, I want someone to tell me how they expect me to get done this major task they've given me. And that's what Paul goes into next. You remember last week when we said that one of the main messages of this letter is Paul saying, wake up and watch out? Wake up. Okay, I've woken up to the reality of my sin. I've woken up to the reality of my wretchedness. I've woken up to the reality that I rebelled against God and I walked towards sin and I chose that. I've woke up to the reality that, that Jesus had to do the work on the cross for me to have any hope. And it's brought great joy into my life. It's brought celebration into my life. That moment of salvation is like, unlike any other experience this world could give you. That joy that comes with, with the knowledge that you've been saved from your sins is unlike anything this world can, can give you to compare it to. It is stands alone in the joy department. Nothing can compare to it. So wake up. That's what Paul says. Wake up. You've woken to the reality that you're a sinner. You've woken to the reality that you've been saved from it. That's amazing. Watch out, though. Because by doing that, you have cemented yourself straight into the crosshairs of the enemy. May I remind you all and myself that we have a very real enemy. It's not your situation. It's not your past, it's not your present, it's not your employer, your husband, your wife, your friend, your neighbor. It's not any of those things. Those things may be manifesting themselves as the enemy, but they're not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. We all have the same enemy. He attacks us differently, but we all have the same enemy. And he has the same objective in your life as he does in mine. To destroy you. That's his objective. 
It's a simple one. And, and quite frankly, his tactics haven't changed since day one in the garden. He convinces us that God's holding back on us, that he has something that he doesn't want us to have. He doesn't want us to see it. It's, it's Christmas presents hidden in mom and dad's closet. He's never going to give them to you. Seriously, they're awesome. Go peek in the closet. That's the kind of stuff Satan's saying to us. And we believe the lie that God's holding back on us. And we believe the lie that there's something better than God. And if we just taste it, we'll know. And once I know, well, then I can make an informed decision. That's how Satan infiltrates himself into our minds and into our hearts. His tactics are the same with all of us. So what does Paul do? He warns us. That you have a very real enemy and you are in his crosshairs and he wants to destroy you, but there's hope. You can protect yourself. Here's how you do it. Now, I have found many teaching tools in my lifetime that have been extremely helpful. Some of which I have to read five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times for it to make sense to my tiny brain. But most of the time that I have this aha moment, like I never thought of that. That is unbelievable. It's someone explaining something to my kids. We bought videos for our kids. I don't know what holiday or birthday we got them for. I can't remember, but it's a teaching on the armor of God. It's, it's less than two minutes long, and I'm going to show it to you this morning because what's said in two minutes right here is much better than I could say in a half an hour. So go ahead and watch this. When the Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus. In the letter, he described how blessed Christians are because of what Christ had done for them and encouraged them to continue in their faith and to live holy lives. He wrote that there is a fierce battle that Christians would have to fight. The battle would not be fought against people, but against spiritual forces of wickedness. Paul wrote that Christians should put on the full armor of God in order to stand victorious in this battle. He probably got the idea of armor from watching the Roman soldiers guarding him. The first piece of armor was a wide leather belt. The belt is the foundation piece of the soldier's armor. Paul called this the belt of truth. Jesus is that truth. He is the only way to God, and without him, there would be no hope. He is the cornerstone of our salvation, the very foundation of our Christian faith. There is probably another 20 minutes that is just profound. I want you to understand he goes through each one. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to show the whole thing. I will let you borrow the DVD anytime you want, though. It's amazing. When the kids ask, like our kids have learned to manipulate us a little bit because if they ask if they can watch TV, we're like usually, no, just go play. You have tons of toys, go play. We're going to watch TV. Can we watch Theo? Yeah, you can watch Theo. 
But he starts by saying that the belt of truth is, the, is Jesus himself. Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. Everything that a Roman soldier wore hooked into, everything that was going to protect his body started with the belt. The belt protected, had held on the breastplate. So the breastplate was God's righteousness. You dress yourself in it. You see, because whenever you're taught, in, whether you're in the military or whether you're in, in the police force, you're taught to go for this area of a human body to protect yourself. If, if you need to go after somebody else or you need to take care of the enemy, you need to take someone out, you go for this. Because everything that critically keeps you alive is housed in this part of your body. And it's vulnerable. So they had these breastplates that were sometimes made out of gold, sometimes made out of bronze, sometimes made out of really thick leather. And they protected you against all the things that were going to get thrown at you in war. So you put that onto the belt of truth. And then he says you put on shoes for your feet, making sure that your feet are protected. Not many people back in the Roman era had shoes, but the Roman soldiers did. They made sure they had thick leather soles that they could walk in the battle and not have to worry about something sticking into their foot or slowing them down because if you can't walk, you can't fight. But what are our shoes supposed to be? readiness given by the gospel of peace. Nothing slows down the gospel. We protect our feet so that we can always go with the truth of the gospel. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. This is something from the video that I never knew. They would take the shields and they would soak them in water before the fight. And they would be completely saturated. Usually they were wooden shields and they would be completely saturated with water, with a leather on the outside. And whenever they would shoot the flaming arrows, if you've ever watched a movie like Braveheart, up over at the line of men, they would hold up these shields, and the arrow, which was on fire, would hit that, hit a wet shield, and extinguish. I never knew that before I watched the, the video we got for our kids. But what is that shield for us? It's the shield of faith. Faith is the thing we hold in front of us that, that drowns out the lie. When the, when, the, when the darts, when the fiery darts and arrows of the evil on our enemy, our common enemy, come at us, they're going to come at us differently at different speeds and in different ways because we're all different. We all have different weak spots and that's what Satan finds and that's what he attacks. And when he does that, the thing that's going to protect you most is your faith. Faith that you know Jesus did on the cross what he said he did. You know it's true. It's not concepts taught by man. It's truth. And you believe it. And it has rocked you to your core. And it drives the agenda of your life. And that faith is what blocks out the fiery attacks of the enemy. And then you put on the helmet of salvation. Because the helmet protects your head. It protects what's going to hit your head. It protects the lies that Satan will throw in. It protects a vulnerable part of your body. Your brain, how you think, how you develop thoughts and how you live is all developed cognitively in your brain. Salvation is the thing that reminds you to live in light of eternity. This thing you've been saved from, this understanding that Christ did indeed die on the cross for your sins and mine. And then what? The sword of the Spirit. 
Folks, we live in a biblically illiterate society. A society that has the Bible available to it like none before. How many of you have a smartphone? Raise your hand. This is the part where you remember that I'm talking and pay attention. There we go. Okay. So if you don't have a smartphone, how many of you have an internet at your home? Access to the internet, any, any way, shape, or form. You have more availability of the Bible at your fingertips than any other human being has ever had before us. It's no longer buying a Bible for someone, although that's a good thing. I still like the feel of the pages in my fingertips. The Bible is so available to us and yet so underread. We have one, actually if you want to nitpick a little bit, we have two offensive weapons given to us in this. Every weapon that's been given to us, everything in this, in this armor is meant to protect us. And the only fighting that we can do, the only thing we have to protect ourselves are the, are the, are the, the sword, which is God's word. Knowing God's word, knowing the truth of God's word. We don't worship God's word. We worship God. But he gave us instruction and he gave us ways to live. And we hold that in front of us and we protect ourselves with it. It's the first line of defense. We know that God's word will protect us because when Jesus was tempted by the same enemy that tempts us, that's how he fought back. The other thing that could be seen as an offensive weapon is Paul closes out his thought in verse 18 with, Praying at all times in the Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit of God to fight on our behalf. We protect ourselves. We know the Word and we let God fight. And we pray constantly. Are we a people of prayer? I don't know. I know my prayer life could use some work. I want you to look at again how Paul closes out his thoughts here. In verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then he switches thoughts a little bit. He says, to that end. That's one of those transition statements. To really understand what he means, we have to read before that. To that end, based on all that I just said about the armor of God, to that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. So keep alert. Don't fall asleep on this. Stay alert. When I was in the military, the drill sergeant would yell out, Stay alert. And everyone would say, Stay alive. Same applies here. You want life in Christ? Stay alert because you're going to get attacked. You stay alert, you stay alive. You feel that life coursing through your veins because of the power of the gospel. I find it interesting what Paul asks for here. He doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask to be some, someone to come to Rome and break him out of the clink. He says this, And pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Giving, given to me, words given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Wow. 
When's the last time I prayed that for myself? When's the last time we prayed that for each other? Let's pause real quick and refresh why this is even possible. If you're, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down these, these few chapters in the Bible. Matthew 26 through 28. Mark 14 through 16. Luke 22 through 24. John 13 through 21. I want you to read them this week. Because those are all four gospel accounts of Jesus leading up to the cross. The crucifixion and the resurrection. I want you to read them. I want you to remind yourself the truth and reality that you live in. Or you have the opportunity to live in. So it's out the cross, which is the exact reason Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He knew what was coming. And the reason he did it is because he loves us. Because he wanted to obey his master, his father. You see, because if Jesus didn't do that, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, then it's just the story of a guy who could do some magic tricks riding a donkey. And that's just silliness to devote your life to. But we hold up our shield of faith and we know that the cross is indeed true. The cross is the worst day in all of humanity. The cross is the absolute worst moment in all of humanity, and yet, it's the most beautiful moment in all of humanity. The worst of humanity was hurled at Jesus on the cross, pounded upon his body and through his flesh. The worst of us. The ugliness we don't like to admit out loud. The darkness. The really rotten stuff. The resurrection, which we're going to look at next week, seals permanently our opportunity to be in the presence of God for all eternity. Listen, folks, that's why this is called good news. If you don't believe that, you don't need the armor of God because this is all just foolishness to you anyway. The armor of God is meant to protect us from the lies of Satan when we accept and live in the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is the truth that Jesus has indeed come to save us. He did. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and I wrap this up, is the reason that Paul wrote these letters, all of them, is because he at one point in his life had a very real, very active encounter with Jesus. And he realized after all the mess that the world was throwing at him, that loving Christ above all else would put him right in the center of the crosshairs of the evil one who wants to destroy him. He knew that. So he wanted others to understand what they were up against he wanted the church to live in light of the gospel. In this world you will have troubles, Jesus says, but take heart. Who has overcome the world? Have I? Has our American political system overcome the world? No, Jesus has overcome the world. The cross is paramount. It's not a symbol we wear around our neck. It's not jewelry. It's not just something we decorate for Easter. 
It's the paramount feature of our faith. Our wretchedness put Jesus on that cross. And his power raised him from the dead three days later. And we get to live in that power. That power resides in us. So we don't ever get past the cross. We don't ever think that what we have is too much for God to save us from. And we don't think that living in in our world, the way that our world feels and the way that we're affected by our pain is something that's just insurmountable because that's just not true. So we're going to close with a song called Lead Me to the Cross because I can't think of a more appropriate way to close out this series than to beg God to lead us to the foot of his cross where his son laid down his life for us. So I ask you to pray with me. If you would, stand. We're going to pray and then sing together. God, lead us to the cross. May we want to be protected by your armor from the lies that Satan's going to throw our way so that we can go and do just what Paul prayed for. Open our mouths boldly for the sake of the gospel. Lord, wrestle in our hearts. Allow us to grapple with the truth of the gospel and the ways that we know we're neglecting our faith, the ways that we know we leave our our armor, collect dust, and try to do life on our own strength. Lord, some of us this morning are miserable. We feel it, we feel this weight and this heaviness. It's a misplaced faith. It's a misplaced identity. And I pray that you fix it today. Lord, that you meet people here in this place and say, lead me to the cross. God, we're grateful that we have this promise. We're grateful that we have the opportunity to live in it. May you be the paramount feature of our faith. May we never think that we can get past the cross. Instead, Lead us to it.